welcome to the Tres Vista Talk podcast, where we engage with senior asset managers and advisors across a broad range of topics. Tres Vista is the leading outsourcing firm for the financial services industry, supporting over 1,000 clients with over 10 trillion in assets under management. Hi, this is Abhilash Jaykumar, co-founder and managing director of Tres Vista. Today, I have with me Brett Hickey, founder and CEO of Star Mountain Capital an asset management firm focused exclusively on the large and fragmented U.S. lower middle market. Star Mountain has a couple strategies focusing on direct investments in both debt and equity, as well as secondary strategy of buying portfolios of assets. Prior to launching Star Mountain, Mr. Hickey was a co-founder and president of a multi-manager platform, including four U.S. state-sponsored small business investment funds. Mr. Hickey has extensive experience performing due diligence on selecting and building business fund managers and has helped structure over a dozen larger funds representing a few billion dollars in assets. Brett, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure, Avi. Before we start talking about the markets, maybe we can start with a little background on yourself. You know, I read that you were a talented speed skater with Olympic ambitions when you were younger. You were a Canadian gold medalist and you broke a national record. Why not hockey? <laughs> Good. Good question. I guess it was it was hockey. Also, uh, uh, probably easy for people to guess uh, that I may have grown up in Canada, which is true. And so there's a lot of cold uh, winter months, and therefore hockey and speed skating made a lot of sense logically. Uh, and I did, in fact, grow up playing both uh, at at very active levels. At a certain point, I had to choose which to specialize in. And what was interesting for me in speed skating, um, having grown up as a um, a single child with uh, only one parent. My mother, unfortunately, passed of cancer when I was young, and my, my father was a high school teacher and the principal of our local middle school. And so to be able to travel, if I won my local events in speed skating, if I won the provincial level, they would pay for me to compete nationally. If I won nationally, they'd pay for me to compete internationally. And that really gave me an interesting ability to travel and experience different places in the world and so forth. And so for me, I found that really interesting and really fun. And I really love team sports. But the other thing I love about individual sports is if you have a game plan and you put the effort in, at least what my experience has been is it really can yield results. And so the one thing I always liked about speed skating is there's really no excuses. It can't be, there's there's nowhere to hide. You either put in the effort and are successful in your competing or not, right? You can't blame your teammates, can't blame anybody else. And so I guess I just, I just like that. I found it a fun way to engage in, um, you know, in life. And maybe can you speak to how that experience and being a competitive athlete has led you to launching Star Mountain and, and why you got to that point and where you've come now? Yeah, it's interesting having, um, you know, we were talking about kids uh, just before this call, you and I, with uh, with young kids, and and I have two young children, and I think a lot about how to raise them in really a different world than I grew up with, very different financial means and so forth, and so how do I think about the things that helped form me into who I am today, and how do I emulate that with my children and give them, you know, other opportunities that, that I perhaps didn't have as well. And grit is really a key thing. Um, as you may know, I sit on the global board of Harvard's Entrepreneur Alumni Association, and 
a lot of the different studies and research that we've seen from Harvard, um, as well as being in the Young Presidents organization for about 12 years. And a lot of the information we see really talks about grit and persistence. And yes, there are some people in life that get lucky, right time, right place, but luck isn't really a strategy. And so if you want to have a high probability of an outcome, I think you need to think long term and really develop a focused game plan where you make sacrifices is the reality and are, are willing and able to work through a whole multitude of challenges, whether it's a pandemic that we're currently facing, whether it's uh, health issues that you may have or part of your team may have. Right? There, there are internal and exogenous factors. And so I think grit is really something like a lot of sports certainly teach people grit. And I'm a big fan of, and I think that is one of the things that speed skating taught me is to really work hard, take a long-term focus. And what I learned at a young age is that if you do that, it really is amazing what you can accomplish. Um, but to the point of luck, I guess the other thing I learned is that I did not end up going to the Olympics. I was on the Olympic training team while going to college. And I, I, one of the things I always liked about speed skating in hindsight is that I knew there was no money in it. So I needed a plan B. So they talk about in finance, not having all your eggs in one basket. And I said, well, I should probably have at least two baskets. One was school to lead to something else because in speed skating, unlike hockey, there's really no financial career opportunity in it. And so that led me down plan B when I flipped my bicycle on the velodrome and ended up not going to Salt Lake City and decided that I didn't want to uh, really devote a big part of my life for the next four years to wait for the next Olympics and hopefully not get injured again because injuries happen. It's just, it's a reality um, of life. And so I'm, I'm thankful that I learned to diversify at least a little bit. And as we built Star Mountain today, we focus you know, extensively on diversification and really thinking about risk management. And I guess that probably had some interplay as well with my growing up. Yeah. Now, I, I want to talk about what you're doing at Star Mountain, but first would love to get your view on the overall market. And as a Canadian, I'm sure you know the Wayne Gretzky quote, I skate to where the puck is going, not where it has been. So, so where do you think the puck is going, so to speak, as far as opportunities for investing in credit? Yes, uh, you're certainly right. I, and in fact, I was born in Edmonton, where uh, where Wayne Gretzky, of course, was the uh, captain of the Edmonton Oilers for, for a long time. And, and so I think anybody who grew up around there, that's really ingrained in us. Uh, I think the puck is going... One, let me give maybe a, I'll break it down in a short term and then medium term perspective. And I think when you hit long term, it just becomes so difficult to forecast that um, I'll, I'll stick more to short and medium. In the short term, as we sit here in early June, I think that when the second quarter financial results come out, I believe there's going to be a rude awakening for many people. Right now, you see a bit of a tale of two stories right now. You see the public markets really rebounding aggressively. And then you look at the economy, and the economy is challenged. And jobs are not going to rebound. They will grow back. But people talk about the swoosh, and I think it's probably a swoosh with some ripples in it, just like any business, as, as you know, running your business and any other business owners know, Nothing is a straight line up and to the right other than perhaps a hockey stick. And so in the real world, um, you know, things ebb and flow. And 
I think you're going to see that. So when Q2 numbers come out, you're going to see a really bad second quarter for the U.S. economy, for most global economies, and for most businesses. And when you look at the S&P 500 today, trading at about a 22 times forward earnings, which is dramatically higher than we've seen in the last couple decades. It's back to the 01 kind of bubble valuations. And then you kind of think about, well, why is that? I think there's a couple factors in there. One is just the amount of liquidity uh, today, I think, is blinding people from some of the economic challenges. But in the short term, that's my view. I think that Q2 is going to be a very difficult quarter. We will see second quarter numbers from different businesses, mostly end of July, early August. And there will be tremendous, I think, both challenges and opportunities. Post Q2, as we get into Q3, Q4, I do believe the economy now is starting on its um, path to recovery. And, uh, And I think maybe two other data points. One is we believe that it's going to take until probably the end of 2021 to get back to end of 2019 levels of economic activity, levels of GDP, and so forth. And also believe that uh, the U.S. economy is generally going to be in much better shape relative to other developed economies because of a few factors, two really big ones. Uh, One is, well, uh, maybe three. One is the U.S. has continued you know, resiliency and ability to innovate. Um, Two is the amount of government stimulus is just tremendous that the U.S. pumped in. It pumped money in fast and at very big levels, right? About $3 trillion of stimulus money. And the speed and volume of those dollars coming in is going to have helped the U.S. economy retain jobs better, get jobs rehired better, and keep wealth in the system. Today, you can see the savings for the U.S. consumers have spiked, largely because of stimulus dollars put in their pocket that they've not yet spent. So that is going to have a big benefit on the U.S. economy on a global basis. The third and last point is that the U.S. is materially less dependent on foreign trade relative to um, you know other economies, and so I think that's going to have a very big benefit for the large ecosystem of the United States, and that will particularly benefit U.S. private, small, and medium-sized businesses. And the last thing that'll probably benefit the U.S. small and me- medium-sized businesses is the global view of people saying a lot of things need to be at least a redundancy capability brought back domestically. So that they're less worried about having things only come from China, perhaps. So those are a few views on uh, economic recovery. I think some short-term both challenges and opportunities. And um, I think the U.S. is positioning on a relative basis. One of the things we've been seeing a lot in the news everyone has in the last couple of months is with obviously defaults and and private equity being dragged into the spotlight for the wrong reasons as, um, you know, with companies that they over leverage. Now, as a lender, you have companies that you've uh, invested in that both have sponsor as backers as well as non-sponsor backed businesses. How have you kind of seen um, your engagement with the companies vis-a-vis sponsor versus non-sponsor backed investments? Yeah, it's a really good question. And we don't have anything against sponsor-owned deals, um, but we have found that 
you need strong operators to work through downturns. Right now, the businesses that we have backed, they have been through on average at least two other recessions. The average operating history of our borrowers is 20 years. So it was really phenomenal how quickly they moved to make tough decisions. Laying people off is a tough decision. These are businesses on average that have maybe you know somewhere between 50 and 200 employees. A lot of them are really strong relationships. These employees have families and so forth. That These are difficult decisions to make. But as a prudent fiduciary, part of life and being senior executives is often having to make tough decisions. And people that have that experience, um, they moved very quickly to make tough decisions. They moved very quickly to look at ways to bring in other revenue opportunities. They moved very quickly to communicate and engage with their vendors and clients where they have built long-term trusted relationships. And so private equity firms buying the companies depends. That can be tough, right? Imagine you're working for a private equity firm and they're saying, hey, Abby, you know, we all need to take a pay cut. And, you know, the, of course, view that some people can take is, well, you're a rich private equity guy. You're asking me to take a pay cut and all these kind of things. That's a very different dynamic than somebody saying, I'm taking a pay cut with you. We've worked through downturns together. Let's rally. Let's go arm in arm. I always think about rugby. I played rugby for a couple of years in college for something fun to do and kind of uh, as a flanker, you, you lock arms with your eight man or something. You kind of go to battle into your scrums together. And I think a lot about that dynamic where you really, you lock arms, you go together, people rowing together. It's a very cohesive, aligned way of operating. And it's just sometimes, there are obviously some great private equity firms out there that do a great job with this, but it's sometimes difficult for a private equity firm that has acquired a business that are viewed to be very wealthy. It's sometimes hard for them to have the same type of relationship and clout with their employees, their customers, their vendors, and having that operating experience. Some private equity firms are great operators, some are not. And so part of our underwriting is focused on making sure that the businesses we're backing are great operators. And those great operators also don't want a lot of leverage on their businesses because they might have 75% of their net worth tied in it. So from a non-sponsor perspective, um, not only historically have we, have we found that generally to generate um, better returns for us, uh, both on an absolute and risk-adjusted basis, but in a market downturn like today is phenomenal because to have the bandwidth to underwrite the non-sponsored deals, there's always a trade-off. And the trade-off in non-sponsored lending or investing, backing founder, owner-operated businesses, it's way more time-consuming. I mean, as, as your team knows, working with us, the amount of information and resources you need to find the deals, to package all the information, to underwrite it, to manage it. But then when a downturn comes, you know, you're used to active management with your portfolio companies versus I know some other people that only do the sponsor back deals. And sometimes they may not have as strong of relationships with their business owners and they're getting information secondhand. And at least our view is we'd rather be as close to the information to maximize accuracy as possible, but it is time consuming, you know, nothing, no, no free lunches in life. No, certainly not. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know you played rugby. I was a fly half in university as well. Anytime my wife reprimands me for forgetting something, I just blame the head injuries. So. <laughs> 
You're fast. You're a faster runner than I am, then probably. <laughs> Unfortunately, not fast enough sometimes. Um, but uh, you know, you talk about backing great operators in an environment like this, and I know starting Star Mountain, you view yourself as much of as as an operator of an asset management business as an investor, and you've put a lot of uh, attention on the culture of your firm and developing talent. And you were recently named one of the best places to work in New York City for a second time, I believe, you know, it's been, you've had this award recognized by numerous publications. So congratulations on that. Can you just talk about, you know, how, why that is so important and specifically in this environment, as people are working remotely and may continue to in the future, as the future of work is evolving, how you think about um, maintaining and developing culture? Yeah, I, I really, um, my, my thanks here, which is one of the reasons that I try to give back um, both time and financially to uh, Harvard, is when I did an executive program at Harvard Business School, um, spending uh, three weeks per year for three different years living on campus with around 150 other CEOs around the world, was really a game-changing way of how I viewed the world. Um, prior to that, in investment banking, as an investor, it's growth, it's profits, it's revenue, it's EBITDA, right? It's very number quantitatively driven. And that matters. But culture also matters. And the one thing that I really changed my force ranking of is how much I believe that team and culture are really our absolute most important assets of our business and I always remember the first one of the first days we had in class, they had you force rank 10 things and they're all high value. Like what's more important, revenue or after tax earnings or growth rates or culture, right? So on and so forth. So none of them are low value things. And I've always viewed culture as important. I think growing up in a small town, you know, especially not having a lot of money, we would borrow snow blowers and <clears throat> lawnmowers and stuff with our neighbors and we really worked as a community together and to me that was just that was normal that was a normal way of growing up um, i've learned in life later that that's not normal for a lot of people but i've always viewed culture as quite important it went from about six out of ten to one out of ten when i was done the program and i was really built to believe that when you look at whether it's sports teams or any other long-term leading organizations that continue to persist through changing economic, economic environments, it really comes down to a really strong, focused, aligned, and motivated team. And so we were thankful to be recognized, as you mentioned, by both Pension and Investments and Cranes, again, uh, recently for Best Places to Work. And, and I think it's really just because we put so much time and effort into attracting, developing, retaining, aligning interests with our team, including some basic things where 100% of our employees get carried interest and in share in the profits of our business. We are a 100% employee-owned business, so we take a very long-term focus with our team, with each other, and with our investors. And I think as you see what that's resulted in today, it's really built some great long-term financial results, but also I think created some competitive advantages heading into the future because you can't just slap a whole bunch of talented people together and win. And I think sports is probably the easiest way to see that. And you have a team with us at Tres Vista in India. Can you maybe speak about how outsourcing as a strategy complements the culture you've been internally? 
Yeah, outsourcing, I think, is is one of the things when I left um, Citigroup, Solms, Barney, where you know, all, all of the big, at least to my knowledge, all the big, certainly major bulge bracket investment banks, they all have outsourced offices, uh, most, if not all of which in India. And so I worked with that and started within that and developing some of that back 20 years ago. And 11 years ago, when we restructured to form Star Mountain Capital as a trademarked brand, I asked myself, you know, what are all the things that the big firms have that the little firms don't have? And how can you bridge that? And how can you recreate that? And outsourcing was certainly one of the important things. So we actually hired our first person in India through an outsourced uh, partnership similar to Trevista 11 years ago. And as we've grown further, adding competencies and what uh, you all have built with Trevista in not only some you know good data entry type of people, which is what historically we've had, but really high caliber, thoughtful people. Not only does it expand capacity and bandwidth, but it also gives you the ability to process information overnight. So we like to say that we're processing data and information really 24-7. So that means that you can analyze more data, analyze it better, analyze it faster, and that creates competitive advantages. And then back to culture, it also gives even our most junior people, folks that they can ask for help, people that can help fill in some data, fill in some spreadsheets, do some work for them. And there's a really uplifting psychological feeling when you're feeling overwhelmed and you say, oh, great, I get to have, you know, my partners at Trade used to give me a hand. Our team really values that as a, you know, as a really what's become now a, a core um, part of our team and outsource team that, that uh, I believe will continue expanding with into the future. Yeah, we both hope so. Um, maybe to wrap things up, can you maybe speak about the different strategies you currently are managing and how you see each of those in the short term and long term as far as the strongest opportunities? Yeah, the, 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 our two primary strategies that are particularly attractive today in our view are one, what we call acquisition financing. So in simple terms, think about the U.S. lower middle market. You have 200,000 private businesses. You have a retiring demographic of people that own private businesses and need to sell them. And then you have challenged businesses that may need to sell. So finding a good company to acquire a business from an older um, business owner, perhaps, or a challenged business. And when you can combine two businesses, because they're now larger, they often have a much higher valuation multiple. So there's good synergies in that. And the complexity of that, the business owners are willing to pay for what we call being a strategic value-added lender, where we'll help them find an acquisition analyze it, negotiate it, structure it, integrate it, and then help them position to eventually sell their business to a private equity firm or somebody to high valuation. And so that type of um, opportunistic you know, acquisition type of financing lending uh, is something that tends to do very well in market downturns, um, including a bit of an all-weather strategy, but particularly today, given the continued aging of our population and now the distressed economic environment. The second is our secondary strategy, where we are purchasing either assets or portfolios of assets, including buying limited partnership interests in lower middle market funds, where there are approximately a thousand lower middle market funds in the U.S. that are within our target market. 
with you know tens of thousands of different limited partners that may want and or need early liquidity on their assets and having the ability to analyze the assets bottoms up is really a critical capability given the complexity to purchase uh, what we believe can be good assets at discounted valuations, and that tends to be a counter-cyclical strategy. Of course, uh, opportunistic in a market downturn such as we're uh, facing today. Wonderful. Well, Brett, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a really wonderful conversation, and I hope you and your family all stay safe and healthy through this uh, current environment, and I'll look forward to speaking again very soon. Thank you, Abby, and thanks to the uh, Trevista team. We really appreciate all your team's effort and support. And with that, we come to the end of this episode of the Trevista Star Talk podcast. Thank you to our listeners, and we would love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you access podcasts. Please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to stay updated on additional content. To know more about how we support our clients on due diligence, business development, portfolio management, fund administration, data analytics, and other areas, feel free to visit our website and reach out to us at www.resista.com. Any information, opinions, and recommendations presented by our speakers are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of their firms or Tresvista and should not be constituted as investment advice. Mm-hmm.